Father, we thank you for your presence, your power, your glory. And as we open your word together now, we ask that you would speak again, Spirit of God. You said in your word in, in 1 Corinthians that you've hidden the mysteries to this world, but you've opened them to your believers. So open the mysteries to us today as we look into your word. Help us to see with those spiritual eyes the things that you want us to know and understand and learn and impart into our lives. That we truly may be your disciples following your way. For we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. We've been uh, looking together at this series on spiritual eyes. We've been journeying, for those that are, are visiting with us, we've been journeying together from Genesis to Revelation and looking at really the story, uh, in a sense, underneath the story, really what's going on in the scriptures. And we've been basing it on this one verse in Ephesians 6. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And we said, well, what, what does that really mean? What, what are these spiritual forces, and how come they're in the heavenly realms? I thought heaven was a place where we all go when we die, and it's a place where God is, and it's full of tranquility and everything else. How come there are spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, as well as and, and what's happening with all this flesh and blood and what is it really talking about. So we've been journeying together and I'm going to recap really quickly. The Bible says that there are two realms in which God created, the spiritual realm and the physical realm. And in the spiritual realm, God created, and the generic term in the spiritual is the Elohim, the Hebrew term. And God is Elohim, He is spirit. We have Elohim within us, the dead, the spirits of the dead are Elohim, angels are Elohim, uh, demons are Elohim. So that's the spiritual realm, and God created the physical realm, which we inhabit here on earth with humanity and the animals and everything else, the story you read about in Genesis. And in those, God wanted, and his whole aim was that spiritual realm and the physical realm should meet together, that the spiritual should enjoy the physical, the physical should enjoy the spiritual. It's why we have a spiritual element to us and why angels and so on can appear in human form. There is an overlap between the two, but in Eden, God said, I want those two to be here across the globe everywhere. And those two realms are to meet, and he gave us this mandate in Genesis 1.28, go into the world, basically bring Eden, the, the unity of spiritual and physical to everywhere you go, is really what it was all about. And so he said, be my image. Go there and be what you see in me, where it's all in harmony and balance, do it everywhere else. The problem was that both in the spiritual realm, in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, they said, no, thank you very much. Some of them said, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to obey what you're doing, God. I want to sit on your throne. I want to be the one calling the shots. Pride gets in the way, and it's the same for us. In the story of Adam and Eve in the Bible, what happened? God said, you do this, 
carry on like this and you'll live a beautiful life. And they went, no, I got a better idea. I want to do it my way, not your way. And so they did the one thing that God said, don't do that. Don't disobey me. Don't, I'm going to give you the freedom, the free will to choose, but we chose wrong. And so there are consequences. And the consequences are separation from God. We became separated. In the story, you're, you're kicked out the garden. For the spiritual realm, they're thrown out of the heavenly realms down to earth and so on. And then obviously what we do is what we always do when we mess up, we try and fix it ourselves. And in the spiritual realm, it says in Genesis 6, that they, the fallen spiritual realm came down and they decided that they're going to make their own images. And they were called the Nephilim. And in Genesis 6, it says that the sons of God and the daughters of women had relationships and this super you know, uh, beings were formed called the Nephilim and they started to inhabit the earth. What did we do? Well, we decided that we would try and uh, go in our own way and we decided that we would not go and fill the whole earth as God asked us to do, not go and bring Eden everywhere, but we kind of wanted to settle down, have a family plant some crops and just live there. And what we would do is build a big tower up to God and God could come down to us where we are at our demands in, in our way. And, and so we did that and it's called the Tower of Babel. We've tried to fix it ourselves. And God said, I'm not having either of those. So what did he do after Genesis 6? What did he do when the Nephilim were across the earth? He sent what? The flood. He said, I'm not having this. And boom, gone. Wiped out because there was evil across the whole earth. And what did he do after Babel? He sent what? Dutch and French and German and Spanish and all these languages that you have to try and learn in school. Right? He sent them all. He said, no, I'm not going to allow you to stay in one place. I told you to fill the earth and I'm going to confuse your languages so they didn't understand one another. And off they went. And he said, it's not happening. And then because of free will, what did God do? Well, he said, okay, because you have chosen this, I respect your choices. I've given you the blessing of free will. You're not just robots doing what I'm telling you to do. I want you to do it because you want to do it. And so he said, for the spiritual realm, that means that they came down in, Gen in um, Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. It said they came down and they filled the whole earth. But God said, you can, you can rule over the earth, but you're not having Israel. That's my portion. That's where I'm going to rule. And I'm going to build for myself a nation in Israel. And they will be a light to the whole world of what Eden could be like. And in uh, Deuteronomy 28 and so on, he, he says, if you obey me again, these are all the blessings. It's going to be just like Eden. You'll never have to want for anything. But as I said, God never changed his plan. He still wants us. The, the original plan of Genesis is still there. He still wants that to be a reality. He doesn't just want us to be sitting there looking at Israel saying, whoa, how are they blessed? Oh, I wish we were living there. He wants Eden everywhere. In the New Testament, he said, I want my kingdom to come. And so he looked around and he said, well, I need two things. First, I need to raise someone that will actually obey, will actually go and do Eden like I asked them to do in the first place and he looked at all of humanity and he looked at 
Alex and he looked at David and he looked at Danette and he, you know, and he looked at uh, Reg and Elizabeth and he went, nah, they just mess up all the time. I mean, some of us mess up less than others, but still, they mess up, right? And he said, I, I need someone that will be obedient to do it. Because as soon as they mess up, what's the consequence? I have to, they separate from me. They're distant from me. And I need someone to get those who have messed up and got thrown out back so that I can redeem them. And so God said, well, I'll have to send myself because there's no other way, right? So he came as a baby and he came to die. And last time we looked at how Jesus got himself on the cross. Because as we said before, the only way that Jesus could come to where we are do you remember when I did it up the front? Don't need to do it again. But you've got the Godhead here, right? As soon as we sin, as soon as we do something that breaks the relationship, we get separated. And there's no way back for us. And so God needed to send Jesus to where we are to bring us back. But how could Jesus get to, how could God get to where we are without sinning? And if God sins, then we're all toast, right? So he had to find a way to take our sin so that he could take the journey but still be holy enough to take the journey back with us right otherwise he'd just be lost over here with us useless right so Jesus had to come but he had to get us to kill him on the cross so that the sin would fall on him he couldn't sin himself then he would be invalid he'd be like the rest of us and we looked at how he did it last time in the physical realm. In the physical realm, he just prodded religion. That's what you do. You just irritate people, right? And we looked at how Jesus just kept prodding and prodding and prodding and prodding. He basically just told them, showed a mirror up and said, you guys are not doing it right at all. And he, and he prodded the establishment until they found a way to remove him. He showed the religious leadership their failings and their abuses and he allowed loads of people to follow him, so he became super popular, and the religious people got scared that maybe everybody's going to follow Jesus and not follow us. So we've got to get rid of this guy. That's what we looked at last week. This week, we need to go deeper because Jesus not only needed the physical realm to send him over here, he needed the spiritual realm to do it too. Now the spiritual realm had a big advantage because the spiritual realm knew exactly who Jesus was. We were there going, who is this guy, right? The disciples, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. We didn't really know who Jesus was. But the spiritual realm knew exactly who Jesus was. They knew exactly who he was, but they didn't know the plan. They thought the plan was to restore Israel, and we'll look at that in a minute. And so Jesus had to, in a sense, prod them enough to have him on the cross, but do it in a way that he didn't reveal the plan of really what he was about. And I'll show you how he did it. The first thing Jesus did was in the temptations. Straight after his baptism, right, in Matthew chapter 4, 
So Jesus starts his ministry age 30. First, obviously, Satan tries to kill him as a baby. That didn't work, right? God protects him. Grows up, nothing much is happening. And then, age 30, when he starts ministry, first thing's baptized. God comes down, this is my son. I'm well pleased with him. Not that he's done anything yet, but I guess because he's lasted that long. I don't know. But then, he's led into the wilderness and the temptations. And the first temptation that came was stones into bread. He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. I mean, I don't know if anybody's done that, but you would be hungry, right? I mean, I'm hungry after about five minutes without a cream cake or something, but 40 days. And Satan comes and says, hey, turn these stones into bread, right? You're in a wilderness. It's full of stones. And Jesus says, no, no, man shouldn't live on bread alone. This is a physical temptation, right? He's saying, look, your body, physical, feed it. Jesus said, no. Second one, he says, takes him to the top of the temple and he says, jump off. Because if you jump off and if you are who you say you are, your angels are going to catch you. Now, this is physical and spiritual, right? Physically, jump off. Spiritually, your angels are going to come and they're going to they're hold you. They're going to rescue you. They're going to make sure you're okay. And Jesus goes, no. Nope. And the third one was this. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you. Why? Because he owns it, right? Except Israel. He has power and dominion over it. All this I will give to you, sir, if you will bow down and worship me. He showed him everything. He showed him a shortcut. All you got to do is bow down and then, you know, Israel, everybody's going to look and they're going to become, it would all be yours. And Jesus said, no, not happening. You don't do that. You see, what Satan didn't understand, what the devil didn't understand, what the fallen spiritual realm don't understand was the real plan of God. The real plan of God was not to restore Israel. The real plan of God was back to Eden. It was to bring spiritual light through the whole world, to build a spiritual family across the whole globe. So that in every part of the globe, this is, this is the, the world at night, not a very good picture in a sense because there's plenty of places where it's dark and it shouldn't be. But everywhere should be a light. And Jesus came for that, but he hid that from the fallen Elohim. They didn't understand. And so Jesus, he said, no, I'm not going to bow down and worship you. Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. First was the temptations, a direct confrontation, a direct shortcut was offered and he went, no, it's not really a shortcut because it won't get to where we need to be. So he said, no. The second was this, in Luke, Luke chapter 9, he said, when Jesus had called the 12 together, that's the disciples, right? He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. 
It's a bit like me when I go on a journey and then I realize I've forgotten everything. You ever done that? Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave the town. If people do not welcome you, leave that town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Now what is this a picture of? What do the 12 represent? The tribes of Israel, right? That's the 12 disciples represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Jesus sent them out to do what? To bring the kingdom of God back to Israel, right? And he said, you're going to do this because you're going to oppose all the negative spiritual forces that are causing sickness and disease and oppression and, uh, you know, uh, and people that are, are going to be possessed and all that kind of a thing. You're going to bring the kingdom of God back to Israel. Now, I'm sure when Satan and his forces saw this, they went, well, this is a bit, you know, we thought we had Israel under our control, so this is a bit. But this works figured this is what God wants to do. He's going to restore Israel, raise it back up as a nation. Not a lot we can do to stand in the way because when God gives you the power, not even the spiritual forces can stand in your way. And so they went and they did it. And they came back and they went, this is amazing. But then in Luke chapter 10, the very next chapter, he said, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others. Sometimes it's 70, sometimes 72. I'll explain why in a minute. And sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest fields. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. Now, why would he send out 70 or 72? What does that represent? If the 12 represents Israel, what does the 70? The rest of us. How do you know that? Because that was a good guess, and you were right on the money. But how do you know? The number of nations, which is found where? Genesis chapter 10, you were about to tell me, weren't you, Tim? Great answer. Now, after the flood, Nephilim come down, right? Flood happens. God says, I'm going to rescue which family? Noah, right? Just checking you're still here with me. Noah. And then straight after that, in Genesis chapter 10, is one of those boring chapters that we like. If you're reading the scriptures, you skim read it. It's a list of all Noah's kids and grandkids and great-grandkids and great-great-grandkids, right? And guess how many there are there? 70. And that represents, and it says in Genesis chapter 10, that this, these are the nations of the world. right? They went off to become separate nations. So 70 in the Hebrew Bible is the number of the nations of the world. So when Jesus sends out 70, it says 72 sometimes in some translations. Now, in 3 BC, this is an aside, there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. So they translated the whole of the Old Testament from Hebrew into their language, which was Greek. 
And in the Greek Bible, guess how many nations there are? Not 70, but 72. So some translations will have 72 if they translate it from the Septuagint. If it was from the Greek, the Hebrew, it would be 70. But it's the same thing. It means the world. So Jesus sends out a representation of the world to do the same thing. Sends them out in Israel, but he's sending them out going, hey, I'm going to send the world the message that the kingdom of God has come near to you, right? Now, I guess the fallen Elohim, I don't know, but I guess they were kind of going, well, that kind of makes sense too, maybe, because if Israel really does what it should do, then the whole world will know. So it kind of makes sense. But that's not what Jesus did. And then when they came back, they said the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's the same verse as in Isaiah 14, where he's thrown out of heaven. He said, you know what? Because of what you're doing now, it's like Jesus had a flashback to, to when Satan was thrown out of the heavenly realms. He said, I, I see it happening again. I see the kingdom coming. I see Eden starting to happen in the world. I see this kind of foretaste of what's going to happen in the future. He says, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy, all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. So he ups the ante, right? Not just a temptation with Jesus, but now Jesus' followers have the power. Now Jesus' followers can go out and start bringing the kingdom of God. He starts upping the ante with the fallen Elohim. See what he's doing? First prod, himself. Second prod, I've given my followers everything they need. I've given them the power. Now there's not just one of me but there's the 12, and then there's the 72. Just where's this going to end? This is unstoppable. Second thing he sent out his disciples, but the third thing is this, Matthew 16. Jesus came to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Everybody know where that is? No, I'll show you in a minute. He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Some said... John the Baptist, others said Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now, you probably can't see this very well. But, see my little pointer? Right, this is the kingdom of Dan, one of the tribes of Israel. There's Dan right there, and this is Caesarea Philippi right next to it, this big long black line that you can see, right? Right up in the north, at the far north of Israel's kingdom. 
And Caesarea Philippi is famous because right above it, as you can see in the white, are mountains. And those mountains have a mount called Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon is famous because at the foot of Mount Hermon is this cave. And in Jesus' time, at the front of this cave was a temple to the god Pan. Anybody know what the god Pan is famous for? God of fertility. Right? And behind the temple that was built was this big cave. It's full of water. And they believed this cave had no bottom to it. They used to, you remember dropping stones into a cave and seeing if you could hear it? Nothing. It just went on and on and on. They believed two things. Firstly, that this was the gate to the underworld. Where the Nephilim, where the fallen angels came up from Hades and had relationships in Genesis 6 with women, this is where it happened. They reckoned that this was, this was the place where they kind of came up from, right? In their thinking. So you understand why the god of Pan, of fertility, was the god of this area, right? Because these fallen angels came up here, right at the foot of Mount Hermon, and this is where they come out and spread across the whole world. And Jesus went to the very HQ, if you like, to the very door of Satan's kingdom. And he said, I tell you that you are Peter, Petros. Petros means what? You know? A little stone. Right, like a pebble, like you skim. Right? No, well, rock, small rock. Right? It doesn't mean... You are Petros, a small rock. And on this rock, Petra, in other words, on the mountain, right, I'm going to build my church. And guess what? The gates of the underworld will not overcome it. What is Jesus doing? He's saying right at the very place where you guys come in and out, Satan, where your fallen Elohim come up and populate the world, I'm going to build my church right there, like a, like a bottle top, right on top of it. And guess what? I have so much power then nothing that you throw at it will ever overcome it. See what he's doing? He's kind of prodding them a bit hard here, right? It's, it's like kind of... Trying to think of an analogy. I guess it's kind of like building a... Building an embassy in a country that you're warring at with. You've got your little bit of land right in the middle of their country. And you say, you can't touch it, because it's not yours. He goes to the very, the very place where, where everybody in the world believed this is where Satan had his dominion. He's the most powerful. And he said, I'm going to build my church right there. And you can't touch it, 
because it's so full of my power that there's nothing you can do about it. And you know what comes next? Guess what he does? If he doesn't want to just make the point there, well, he says, I'm going to give the keys of this, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, so that whatever you bind on earth, whatever you say can't come out of this hole, won't come out of the hole. And whatever you allow, will allow. I'm giving my power to my disciples to overcome and to choose. And then right next, do you know what he does? He climbs up on top of Mount Hermon, right above where this thing is, and he's transfigured. He reveals his complete glory to everybody. He's saying to Satan, you think you've got power? You think you've got what it takes? You think you look good? This is me. And he calls down, you know, the two witnesses, and he, he's there, and Peter, James, and John are there, and they're going, Peter's, you know, let's build, let's keep this here, let's just, you know. But his face shines like the sun, and his clothes become white as light. Right in the very doorway of the enemy, he shows his power. Now, are you surprised that Satan got a little bit ticked off? You see what he's doing? Prod, 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 prod a bit harder. Let's prod a bit more, and a bit more, and a bit more. Until Satan said, that's it. He's got to go. And so what did Satan do? Well, the devil entered humanity. See the two coming together in Judas? And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard. And you know the rest of the story. Holy Week and Easter. You see, Jesus never revealed the true intent because he was there to build a family that was unstoppable. But Satan and his dominion, the devil thought he was there to just build Israel. And therefore, if we get rid of the head, we can get rid of the whole thing, just like the Pharisees said. Better to sacrifice one guy than the whole institution comes crashing down. And so they came together through Judas, betrayed. And on the cross, it's why Jesus finally said, right? it's finished. It's done. Because on the cross when he took our sin, what happened? He took that journey to where we are. And he said, here it is, I'm done. And the temple curtain was torn in two. Not when he rose from the dead, but when he had died. When, when he had finished, he took the journey. Because he knew he had the power to take the journey back. God has all the power. <laughs> he knew he could get back. He just didn't. He just had to take the journey to us so that then he could rescue us and bring us back to him. It's why Jesus came. It's the spiritual story of the Gospels. He came to die. 
so that he might rescue you and me. Now, there's lots of things he did in between this, but I think these are the three main kind of chapters, if you like, about how he got the realm to, to kill him. And he said to you and me in Matthew 28, you know this so well, go, well, first he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, right? I can plant my church at the gateway and there's nothing they can do about it. Now go, make disciples of all nations. Bring Eden. Why, how? By making disciples. By, by encouraging others to get involved in the journey of bringing Eden to this world. By encouraging other people to let their light shine so that the world may be populated with spiritual people shining their spiritual light and their physical light out everywhere we go, in every nation, in every corner of this globe. And he said, I'm gonna be with you always. I've given you the power, I've given you the authority, I've given you the role that I've called you to do. Now go and do it. Because he wants that whole globe to be a blaze of light. That's our job. That's why we are placed here. That is what Trinity Church is for. If Trinity Church is not doing that, it is better it's not doing anything. If a church is not doing that, it's better it shuts its doors and stops pretending. Because that is why we are here, individually and collectively together, to shine. In Matthew 5, 16, he said, let your light shine so let me ask you today you see what Jesus did how he did it how are we shining our lights are they shining are you going and making disciples because that's not just my job he didn't say I'm calling all the pastors of this world to go and make disciples did he he said, all those people that said they're going to follow me, your job is to encourage everybody's light to shine. So let me ask you this question. Who are you discipling? If you cannot name the list of people that you're discipling, then you're not discipling anybody. If you go to a teacher... and say, who's in your class? Don't know. Wouldn't be much of a teacher, would they? They can name them all. Well, there's, you know, Bob, and there's Frank, and there's da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and the naughty ones all sit at the front, right? They know where they are, and the good ones sit at the back, and they know where they all are. They can name them. Why? Because they're discipling them, aren't they? They're teaching them. They're training them. They're wanting them to grow. They want them to know more at the end of the year than they did at the beginning of the year. Jesus said to you and me, as you're going about your business, make disciples. Now to do that, you need to know who you're discipling. 
Who are the people that God has brought into your life? Believers and unbelievers, that you can encourage them to let their light shine even more. To do that, you need to be focused on it as a role. It's something that you have to get up and you kind of go, right, and, and you need to allow others to disciple you too, right? It's what you need to do if you're serious. Otherwise, there's no light. And we're not following what God asked us to do all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. So I want you to think this week, who are the people that God has brought into your life, into your life? Maybe work colleagues, maybe family, friends, neighbors, whoever. That God is saying, these are the three or four people, five or six people that I want you to disciple. I want you to encourage them. I want you to, I want, I want you to help them to allow their spiritual light to shine in greater and greater measure. Maybe right now, if they're not a believer, they don't have a spiritual light that's shining very brightly at all. And you need to help them. Or maybe they are a believer, but, but they're struggling and their spiritual light is, is dim. And you need to, God has called you into their midst to help them to allow that light to shine in brighter and brighter measure. As you are going, he said, make disciples. It would be nice if we didn't have the power. It would be nice if we didn't have the mandate. It would be nice for a whole load of reasons if it wasn't what God asked us to do, but it is, isn't it? When I read the pages of Scripture, He sent out the 12, He sent out the 72, and He sent out you and me. Do it, He said. That's why Jesus came and died. He didn't just die to take this journey to rescue you and bring you back and go, there you are, you're sorted now. He came and took this journey to bring you back so that you and me might not only shine our own light, but go and help others to shine theirs too. Let's pray. Father, your love for us was so great that you sent your son. And I don't know how he managed to pull it off. How he managed to speak truth but hide the real reason and how he managed to prod both the physical and the spiritual realms enough so that they would put him on a cross which is where he wanted to be although in the physical he didn't but where he knew he needed to be so that he could come and rescue us. But Lord, you didn't just rescue us to bring us back and say, there you are. Enjoy your holiday now. You said, go, go and make disciples. Go as I've allowed your light to shine. Uh, go and help others to let their light shine. And let them help you so that you may shine brighter and brighter. Lord, I ask this week for each one of us that we might put down a list of, I don't know, one, two, five, however many people. It doesn't matter. 
but the people that you bring into our minds as we speak and as we are still before you this week. Lord, bring names into our consciousness of the people you're calling us to disciple, to encourage their spiritual light to shine, to lift them up, to be, be an encourager, a Barnabas, to be, to be a, sometimes a challenger, to, to be alongside them in the journey as much as they will allow us. Maybe to bring them to you at the outset. Lord, show us. Teach us what it is to be followers of you. For we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.